Highways Voices, the podcast of Highways News, your one-stop destination for all the news about the highways and transport technology industries, and our must-read daily newsletter. This week on Highways Voices, we're looking at practical near-term applications for autonomous technology. I think with a bit of work and considering what would be the need for uh, regulation to make this happen, I think we could get to a point in the not too distant future where you could see automated logistics in private operations, which a significant majority of them are. The Department for Transport's former Chief Scientific Advisor is our guest on the show today, steering us in the right direction of all things transport technology and next generation, here on Highways Voices. Highways Voices, in association with partner organisations, the Transport Technology Forum, ITS UK, LCRIG and ADEPT. So Professor Phil Blythe of Newcastle University is on his way after we've heard from Highways News co-owner Adrian Tatum with some of this week's stories that have caught his eye on our website. National Highways is teamed up with Connected Places Catapult to find innovative solutions for net zero carbon maintenance and construction. This is an exciting new competition worth £1.7 million which was launched this week. The winners could receive £30,000 to create a detailed trial proposal to test their idea on the road network and a further £80,000 to make their plan a reality. As well as wanting to make its road network net zero by 2050, National Highways also aims to have its maintenance and construction emissions net zero by 2040. There are a number of intriguing challenges which have been set as part of the competition to help National Highways reach its environmental goals. And elsewhere, Cumbria County Council's Cabinet has agreed to appoint Gallifrey Tri Construction to undertake the design and build of the multi-million pound Carlisle Southern Link Road. Despite several challenges with rising cost of materials, the County Council, Carlisle City Council and Government have remained committed to progressing the project. The Department for Leveling Up, Housing and Communities has now confirmed they will provide £212 million in funding for the new road, subject to finalising the legal agreements. This is in addition to the combined contributions from Cumbria County Council and Carlisle City Council of £13.8 million, which will be sourced from developer contributions as homes are built. And Transport for London has allocated more than £63 million in funding for London's boroughs in 2023-2024, with more to follow in 2024 and 25 as they continue their vital work making the capital's roads safer and more attractive for people using public transport, walking and cycling. A healthy streets investment in boroughs provides funding for local projects that support the mayor's transport strategy and other local priorities. These include improved public transport schemes that support the mayor's Vision Zero goal of eliminating death and serious injury from the transport network, and opportunities for safe and active travel in local communities. Now remember, when it comes to industry news, we are the only place you need to go for everything you need to know. There are so many more stories on our site, dozens in fact. Find them all and so much more at highways-news.com where you can find links to our LinkedIn and Twitter feeds and of course you can sign up for our daily email into your inbox every lunchtime. Highways Voices with Paul Hutton and Adrian Tatum. Swarco improves quality of life by making the travel experience safer, quicker, more convenient and environmentally sound. 
from software as a service traffic management solutions to parking, VMS, EV charging and road marking too. Find out how Swarco can deliver more efficient and safer traffic management. Swarco, the better way every day. Now, a few weeks ago, I was invited by Newcastle University to a roundtable discussion and followed on by a reception at the House of Commons Terrace to discuss their ideas for connected and autonomous logistics. There's a story on the Highways News website about the discussion from the day that I'll link to in the blurbs, which suggested that, compared to other driverless applications, logistics in closed networks could be a quick win. Now, it was such an interesting approach, I wanted to know more, so I caught up with Professor Phil Blythe of Newcastle University, who's the former DFT Chief Scientific Advisor, and started our wide-ranging chat by me suggesting that this could be low-hanging fruit for the industry. I think so, in the sense that it's a more controlled environment and there's certainly a need for that it's not a technology push, which has been a great failure with a lot of early ITS rather than market market pull, uh, because the logistics industry really needed. They know they're not going to have enough people to deliver all the logistics of the future. And also this idea, at least as an interim solution of using some sort of remote teleoperation connecting to the vehicle by 5G. So uh, someone is monitoring the vehicle and can take over as and when it's necessary, I think gives quite a pragmatic approach. So the round table and the event and the parliamentary reception we held in London at the end of uh, February was really to try and say, look, we've done a lot of this work now in the Northeast. We understand the challenges from the technology point of view, the operations point of view, and what, what the logistics companies need. There's a few more steps required to understand what is really safe, what do workloads and uh, safe workloads mean for teleoperators and the like. But I think I think with a bit of work and considering what would be the need for uh, regulation to make this happen, I think we could get to a point in the not too distant future where you could see automated logistics in private operations, which a significant majority of them are. Uh, we don't see them because they're moving from logistics companies into many, many times into manufacturing companies. But it's a really important part of our economy. You mentioned about the jobs and I, I was interviewed, as I sometimes am, on uh, BBC Radio a couple of weeks ago and was asked about driverless vehicles and the concept of putting people out of work. And I kind of tried to explain that what I picked up at the round table and the parliamentary reception is that it isn't that you're putting people out of work, you're using technology to replace a workforce that is disappearing. And if we don't find a new way of actually operating these vehicles, we're going to struggle to actually get these vehicles moving at all. Yeah, HGV drivers has has been on the National Risk Register for quite a long time, recognising that a significant proportion of them are over 50s and are likely to retire in the next 10 years. And there are not the younger people coming through. So I, I don't see it as impacting on employment as such. I think it, it opens up more opportunities for employment. So people who couldn't go out in a lorry and do this because they have to be near home, maybe have uh, school kids or, or have other caring requirements, they can do this from their front room. So it opens up a whole new level of opportunity for employment, particularly uh, for those from uh, more diverse backgrounds than the majority of lorry drivers are at the moment. So 
And, and if you talk to the logistics suppliers, they are desperate. They cannot get enough drivers and they know that it's only going to get worse. And as we expand, as manufacturing expands in the Northeast, which is what led us to think about this in the first place, they generally are concerned there will not be enough people to deliver. So, for example, Vantec, who's, who's been hosting this demonstration uh, and trial, they have a lot of logistics drivers who came from the third shift at Nissan when they moved down to two shifts a day. And they're really concerned that if Nissan increased their production again and need another shift, they're going to lose their drivers, which ironically means that uh, Nissan will struggle to have the logistics to deliver all, all that's needed to production line. So I think, I think it's a win-win. And my own personal view and the, the view I, I've, I've argued with government before is I'd rather we were a leader in this and uh, we're doing CAM and leading on it and providing the thought leadership and the uh, and, and the forward momentum rather than just someone else providing those solutions and us having CAM done to us, which is which is the other risk. So I think there's a real opportunity for UK. You mentioned about telling government, of course, you spent six years as chief scientific advisor to the Department for Transport. Does government actually listen? Are they really looking for the latest solutions that they can use and technological solutions to, to boost efficiency and productivity? They, they have the ambition. If you remember when I first came into government as CSA, we, we set up the Future Mobility Grand Challenge, one of the four grand challenges for the industrial strategy. And there was a real ambition to be on the leading edge of a whole raft of transport innovations, such as electromobility, automation in the security field, even looking at future aviation, you know, the future of drone deliveries, flying taxis and, and, and uh, urban aviation. So there's a real ambition, but moving that from where the ambition starts to, to the reality of having the funding to make it go forward is always a challenge. And I think particularly a challenge in the UK, because a lot of our innovation funding only lasts for a year. So companies come in, they start up, they have great ideas, and then they realize they have to bid again and again and again for the next year and the year after. Um, although there's some quite generous funding, it, it does actually put a strain on them because there's a level of uncertainty and other countries do it differently. So we, we've sadly seen a number of great startups using UK research and innovation that have moved elsewhere because they found the, uh, the, the landscape for funding better. It's changing. Uh, and I, I think the, the funders recognise that, but there's a, there's a long way to go. And if it's a really long haul with bringing technology up the TRL levels towards deployment, and it requires government money because there's, there's a market failure, it's not, it's not ready to be let loose without some government funding, it can become very, very tricky because I think one of the other frustrations about government, they don't like to pick winners. They'll, they'll let people compete against each other for a long, long time to a point where companies get to a point where at times they, they just give up. They, they, they're not going to be the winner and they just give up. And I think sometimes we need to move through those innovation cycles much, much quicker, which means at times maybe giving steer and picking that winner. Britain is famous for coming up with brilliant ideas and then letting other parts of the world um, 
push them forward. I remember watching a documentary on the video recorder that was invented here. And of course, it became the big Japanese import in the 80s. And uh, and the computer, if only we'd carried on developing that, then program would be spelt correctly with the ME at the end of it. You know, it's that. Do you get a, a feeling it might be different in the uh, in the driverless vehicle side of things? I, I, I think you know, in, in the early days of the support of research into autonomous vehicles that CCAV, uh, which is this joint body between DFT and Bayes, or what was Bayes, uh, had, they really saw that, it, you know, cars were the, this it was driven by the OEMs for, for cars. I think four or five years ago, government went really lukewarm on automation and funding almost dried up. And I think that, that that forced those involved to really take a, a step back and really think about what are the real use cases for automation and clearly um, uh, autonomous logistics, public transport shuttles, um, some, some small pods driving around are probably the more likely things to happen and derive benefit than having every car on the road uh, autonomous at level, level four or five. To be honest, I, th- I think there's been a real renaissance in the thinking around CAV now. Four or five years ago, I think government was getting mixed messages from the automotive industry saying, oh, we're putting all our engineers into electromobility because that's where the policy is, that's where the clear leadership is, and that's where we need to be. And I think government took that as meaning we're not interested in connected autonomous vehicles anymore, which certainly wasn't the case. But I think they've been reinvented. I certainly think the the last call of which, as Newcastle University, we were fortunate enough to be in two of the uh, funded projects, one on connected autonomous logistics and the other one on a, um, a passenger transport autonomous shuttle around Sunderland. Um, but the the kickoff meetings on those have happened over the last week or so. So you've had all the right CAV people there from the commercial, the safety, you've had the vehicle um, certification agency and everybody to do with what's needed from a regulation and signing off the technology You've had um, Zenzik there looking at the business case and the evaluation. So I think I think they've had a real rethink and they've come up with a, a package of what they think is needed to really push towards commercialization, which was the badge of this particular call. And I think based on the discussions we, we've had at the launch meetings, I think they've got it about right. Um, so as long as the the politician recognise that, you know, you're not going to have millions of these around in the next year or two. It's still going to need some nurturing and funding and support, which will obviously taper off over time. We will get somewhere with the UK being seen as one of the leaders again, like we were perceived five or six years ago. What else were you working on? Okay, well, the whole thing around micromobility and trying to encourage people to be more healthy in their travel choices was was very important for a number of the ministers. Making transport accessible and uh, ensuring mobility to the older population is seen as critical. And sorry, obviously, um, the Department for Health and Leveling Up saw that as critical. The whole thing about vehicle emissions, you know, we're still going to have ICU vehicles around for a long time. So when I just arrived at DFT, about three months later, the Volkswagen scandal kicked off. So I was I was stuffed on a plane to New- to Washington the next day to talk to the EPA about all of that. And I think there were some real opportunities to to do things differently with what how we how we manage and how we test and the testing cycles for um vehicles which i think is really important you know there's still issues going on with certain classes of of road vehicle now all the national security stuff around aviation is always important there's always trying to keep that, that ahead of the game 
aviation, you know, new, new modes of aviation, the new power trains for aviation, electric and hybrid, always interesting. The whole idea that maybe in the future you might have urban aviation with short takeoff aircraft providing city to city connectivity, you know, build your little city airport above your railway station, have proper connectivity. The whole issue of trying to look at where rail and HS2 fit in in the future and how that can be run more effectively using the best possible technologies and increasing the amount of, of movements on the rails because um, you know as you have more detection of trains you can squeeze them closer together and still be safe when i started in 2015 we were still working on very very old practices whole raft of stuff and things that weren't thought about at all you know where the challenges came on things like decarbonizing infrastructure finding new materials for roads that are um, more decarbonized, decarbonizing concrete, looking at how sensors in infrastructure could measure the performance of that infrastructure and keep older infrastructure running for longer. And also the maintenance of it being lower cost because you do condition-based monitoring based on what the sensors tell you rather than time-based monitoring where you go out once a year and have a look at it and see whether it's going to fall down or needs maintaining. A whole raft of other stuff. And I think as time went on, you you move into what is a big priority and clearly decarbonization and net zero uh, came to the top of the list. I, I ended up being almost a lone voice within the DFT saying we really do need to look at hydrogen and explore what role that could play in decarbonizing transport. And that was really motivated by discussion with my counterpart from Bayes, who was looking at where hydrogen could be used for maybe domestic heating and cooking, could be used for, for large manufacturing energy intensive processes, which meant for the first time, the economic case for hydrogen and its potential for use and availability for use in transport changed. I think the challenge was in the DFT, they put so much of their time and effort into the electric mobility basket, anything that sort of interfered with that, you know, it took a long time for people to realise that the two could coexist and they, they're not competing. I think hydrogen is for the hard to decarbonise modes of transport, like heavy goods vehicles, buses, off-road vehicles, some trains, maritime clearly through some hydrogen vector. And um, I think more, more increasingly, aviation as well. Professor Phil Blythe of Newcastle University is our guest on Highways Voices this week. We'll hear more from him in a moment after we've heard news from our podcast partners. Highways Voices, with the latest news and events from our partner organisations Elkrig, Adept, the Transport Technology Forum and ITS UK. Going to start with congratulations to my friend Paula Clayton-Smith, who will take over as the new Chief Executive of Elkrig from July. Paula, who's currently the organiser Director of Government and Strategy will take over from Martin Duffy. He'll assume the role of Chair of Elkrig. This means that Elkrig will retain Martin's knowledge and sector insights, with Paula representing Elkrig full-time as Chief Executive to ensure the group continues to build on its successes with members, partners, government and the sector. Local authorities and national governments will discuss how technology can help them solve their road transport challenges during the two-day Transport Technology Forum conference in Leeds next month. The agenda for the event on the 26th and 27th of April, with a networking event on the 25th, has been released and details.
details how delegates will hear of government priorities and policies and about the funding landscape ahead, as well as digital solutions, cybersecurity and collaboration. With sponsorship from the private sector, local authorities will be able to attend for free. A record number of authorities have already signed up to the, attend the event, with more applying each week. You can check the TTF website to sign up as a delegate or as an exhibitor. On the 14th of June, ITS UK will be holding a parliamentary reception with Transport Innovation Minister Jesse Norman confirmed to attend. This event will provide the opportunity for ITS UK members to meet with parliamentarians and industry stakeholders in the House of Commons. Members should check their weekly newsletter for details on how to register. And our friends at ADEPT tell us Transport for West Midlands has published the final output report from the Live Labs One programme, providing an overview of their project and the outcomes. As part of the Live Labs remit, each project was asked to share findings and knowledge with the wider highway sector. TFWM's final report includes information about the Network Resilience Live Lab, which focused on driving innovation, supporting sustainability and improving the safety of the region's transport network users. The £2.65 million project used a combination of innovative video analytics and establishing partners to help combat congestion across the West Midlands. You can find out more about it on the ADEPT website. Highways Voices, the podcast from highwaysnews.com. Highwaysnews.com. Now let's get back to our chat with Professor Phil Blythe, the former Chief Scientific Advisor at the Department for Transport. And next up, we got on to talking intergovernmental politics. See, it's really interesting how you've kind of explained you were dealing with other departments departments and it it reminds me of your Newcastle University uh, fellow professor Margaret Bell would argue when it comes to decarbonisation that one of the things that we had to look at was limiting and reducing the amount people actually travel and you know she she even would talk about rationing it and saying I'm sorry you've used up the amount of travel you can do, because that's the only way, in her view, that we were going to get to uh, the emissions targets that we, we needed to get to. Similarly, Paul Campion from TRL on a Highways Voices podcast a year or so ago argued that the Department of Health should be subsidising some of our active travel uh, policies within transport because it would have a knock-on saving to the health budget in the future. Yeah, This all sounds great and sounds lovely ideas, but having worked in the machinery of government for many years, is that even a, a worth thinking about, let alone achievable? We, we, You know, that conversation about, you know, if we're doing things that benefit other departments, they should cover part of the cost had that discussion with Department for Health and with other departments as well. And there's a willingness to look at that, but it, it's really complicated. You know, Treasury used to encourage um, multi-departmental uh, spending spending review bids in particular areas, but then they didn't know how to handle them when they came in, so they became less attractive. But, yeah, that's important. I mean, over the time of the DFT, I think there was a recognition that have to work more effectively with other departments. So CCAV was set up for connected autonomous vehicles. So Bayes dealing with the business and the automotive side of it, Department for Transport looking at the feasibility and what's needed to get these safely on the road. 
Same is true with um, OZEV or, um, in terms of looking at that from how do we get adoption of electric vehicles and what are the challenges from a mobility and transport point of view, DFT, and what's the economic opportunity from a base point of view. Others, we, we set up the JACU unit, joint air quality unit between um, DFT and BASE to look at the issues around NO2, which led to the clean air zones, set up other, other units with, with health, with Department for Leveling Up, to look at you know how how planning stuff can be rationalised between transport and housing and the like, but whether the recognition that sometimes there, there should be a skin in the game to deliver that is an, is, a, is another challenge. Going back to the point about decarbonisation, I mean, when when the decarbonisation plan was being put together uh, late twenty twenty, uh, well twenty twenty early twenty one, prior to its launch in July twenty one, the first stuff coming out was. Technology can solve all the problems. It's all to do with electrification. It's all to do with this, that, and the other. And you know, the the role that social science and changing behaviour had was really, really limited. We we work as a science team and the behavioural team work very hard to actually make sure that that was part of the mix because technology can, has a role to play in decarbonisation and net zero. But we've got to recognise that the scale of the transition needed to do that is more than technology itself can deliver. You've got to make sure that both industry, individuals and stakeholders recognise that they have to change how they do things as well. So whether it be demand management, whether it be persuading people to think more carefully about the modes or or travelling less. And I think we had a great opportunity coming out of COVID where people had learned to do so much more business and and commerce and social things remotely uh, with less travel. It's a shame we didn't capture and keep more of that than is left. And yeah, you know, rationing travel. I mean, if you remember, you know, my my, my first research area was road pricing. We helped to develop the first multi-lane toll collection systems in the world, put in the Cambridge congestion metering in the mid-1990s, the first demonstration of road pricing in the UK. And I, I led the feasibility team in coming up with the solution for London from review of charging options for London. They delivered an idea of what the mayor could put in when the first mayor was elected in the late 1990s. There's lots need to be done around that whole space. You can't just replace every petrol vehicle on the road by electric one. You have all the congestion and energy and CO2 embedded in making these new things. We've got to look at how we can do transport differently, do more shared transport, and make sure that public transport is in the heart of people's psyche. There you are. Professor at Newcastle University, you've got the next generation of our innovators and engineers coming through your department. What sort of things are your students actually learning in their lectures? I run the lecture modules on future transport, ITS, mobility, stuff like that, get them to think about what the future looks like, how they can harness these technologies and take back solutions to their own countries, recognising that countries have different levels of technology adoption and availability of money to do things. But uh, we, we just try and get them to think about the ambition of what could be done and the fact that we cannot continue delivering transport in the way we have, where you just consume more and more and more. We cover a whole bunch on net zero, look at hydrogen, look at electromobility, take them out, and they 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 collect and analyze data on some of the charging networks. They, they, they look at the work we're doing on hydrogen. They consider all the challenges there are and how they can be transferred back to their own environments. 
we are blessed because we have things like the Tynanweir Urban Traffic Management and Control Centre, which is run by the City Council on behalf of the region. That's actually based at the university. So they, they go and look at that, use that, have a look at data and, and really understand what could be done. Just as an example, we have the, the module Technology of the Future Mobility running in May. One day they're going to City Hall in Sunderland to think about Sunderland as a smart city with its 5G bearer, its automated vehicles and everything else it's doing. So they can actually see that wider connection of what smart city is about, how it enables people and delivers inclusive uh, local government and services. We have another day we're going to Vantech, uh, the logistics company near Nissan, to hear all the concerns about what logistics will look like in the future if we don't have enough people to run it. What are the new ambition? You know, how can we do things completely differently? We have autonomous vehicles coming up here, so they're going to ride around in those and think about how that could be integrated into an environment back in their own home country. Going to the port of time, looking at smart ports as well. So it's really getting the students out there to see, see that even though the future is not evenly distributed, you know, there are some really super uh, sexy technologies coming along and they can all be applied with a bit of thinking uh, to very, very different environments in different parts of the world at different levels. So we get some great students from around the world. I think one, one of the ambitions we have is to really grow the program. We've set up a Newcastle University Centre of Research Excellence to really bring the, the, the multidisciplinary research from all our faculties together. And the ambition now I'm back full time is to really make Newcastle the go place, go-to place go for uh, future mobility and that, that future vision of transport. Such interesting stuff from Phil Blythe and so much so that I'll be taking a trip north to Newcastle later in the year to record a podcast special where we can find out even more about what's going on in that hive of innovation. Now that's almost it for this Highways Voices but we've still got time to find out who Adrian's tipping his hat to this week in Adrian's Accolade. And my accolade this week goes to Elkrig's Paul the Clayton Smith. Paula will take over as the new chief executive of the local council's Rose Innovation Group from July. She's currently the organisation's director of government and strategy and will take over for Martin Duffy. Congratulations to Paula on an amazing career so far that keeps on getting better. A worthy winner indeed of my accolade this week. So that's Adrian's accolade winner this week and that'll do it for this Highways Voices. We're back next Wednesday, half past nine. We'll catch you then. Highways Voices. Join us again next week for more insights from those that matter in the industry. 